Hey there. Welcome to episode 10 of the Hansel and Gretel Code. Ciao! Back in episode 9, we started looking into the metaphors of the second sentence of our fairy tale. And we found our woodcutter living on Tobacco Road. In other words, in genuine, involuntary poverty. Today, we're going to complete our investigation of that second sentence and get acquainted with his little family of four. So before we start, let's just take another listen to those two sentences. Once upon a time, there was a poor woodcutter who lived before a great forest. He had it so rough, he could barely feed his wife and two children. One, in which we find two super Virgos following their bliss. What? Well, in 1913, two of the most important folklorists of the 20th century, Yeri Polivka and Johannes Bolte, well, they published the first of five volumes of what can only be described as a massive Virgoan tour de force. Ooh la la. What they had done was to gather every fairy tale collection they could find from every country and then group each of the individual tales according to which of the Grimm's 200 stories they resembled. In all, they produced over 2,500 pages of densely packed facts and references, and they didn't finish the project until 19 years later, in 1932. Right? We gotta be talking tens of thousands of fairy tales that these guys read through, classified, and cataloged. In the case of Hansel and Gretel, they had distinguished five main motifs or plot points, and using them as a kind of literary fingerprint, they found over 200 fairy tales having two or more of those plot points in some combination. Wow. Well, as impressive an undertaking as that was, what's the point? So if we look at the first of those identifying plot points, the one they called the children being left in the woods by their father, turns out nearly every one of the stories that included it were published after 1810. Yeah, so what? Well, that's super interesting because it means our manuscript version of the story, published in 1810, is one of the earliest and oldest examples of the full fairy tale. Really? Fact is, out of those 200-plus stories, they only found four that were published earlier than our manuscript, and that include this one particular motif. Oddly enough, none of those four stories have all five of the plot points found in the manuscript. Still, they bear looking into especially if we're going to assume that the story of Hansel and Gretel is like from the Middle Ages, if not even from before. And if it is, there just might be some ancient wisdom encoded in it that's been handed down through generation after generation of storytellers. And since that wisdom has been passed over by generation after generation of listeners and readers, you and I are here to finally suss it out. 
That's awesome. Part two, in which we travel the world and knock out the knockoffs. So let's take a quick look at those four stories. The oldest example these two folklorists found was from the 16th century, an Alsatian tale by a certain Martin Montanus, the title of which translates into a fine tale about a woman with two children. It was first published around 1557, and it must have been fairly popular because around 200 years later, it ended up in Goethe's hands. Are you sure? Well, we know this for a fact because he made mention of it in a letter he wrote in May of 1776. Now, the next three stories were from the 17th century, the oldest of them being Giambattista Basile's Neapolitan story called Pizza. <clears throat> Nenillo e Nanella, first published between 1634 and 1636. This was followed by two French stories, Madame d'Alnois' Finette Saint-Ron, which came out around 1690, and which is much closer to Cinderella than it is to Hansel and Gretel. And finally, Charles Perrault's Les Petits Poussets, or Little Thumb, from 1697. Ooh la la! Also, this theme of child abandonment is consistent with an English ballad called The Babes in the Wood, and known to have been published in 1595. That's correct. Now, I don't want to get us off track here, except Bolte and Polivka, our two Virgo extraordinaires, also cite a story from a book of fairy tales coming out of Pakistan that was published in 1892. The translator of that collection tells us that he didn't get his stories out of books. He collected them from local storytellers. Now, he also expressed his certainty that all of them are older than history itself. And I'm inclined to believe him. Oh, really? Well, yeah. See, I found and read the story in question. And thank you, archive.org. It was called... Lal Badshah, the Red King. And it excited the hell out of me because it reads as a kind of mashup of elements from the Alsatian story and from Basile's Neapolitan story of Nenillo e Nenella. So you gotta figure that it really must be older than both of those stories, and therefore the real deal. A genuine source for those stories. No way. Hey, that's not just me saying it there are a couple of very good reasons for that being the case. One of them is that Carl Jung considered Europe to be a cultural and psychological peninsula of India. Is that so? Of course, there are other more scientific sorts of reasons backed by philologic facts. You can read about them when I finally publish all of this material as a book. Please don't do that. Right now, as exciting a discovery as that is, uh, let's just get back to the task at hand, which is to understand why it's such a big deal to find out there are only four or five 
Hansel and Gretel type stories that are certifiably older than our manuscript. Why? See, first it tells us that all of them, with that children abandoned in the woods business and published after 1810, well, they're all knockoffs, with that one exception of the story from Pakistan. Actually, there's another story from Kashmir that's also similar to the oldest of the European tales, the Alsatian one. Except the children in it aren't left in the woods, and they're not abandoned at all. Hooray! Anyway, all of the later stories, the ones written after 1810, whether they come from France or Sweden or Russia or Romania, well, they're all retellings or local adaptations of the more original, an explicitly German story of Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. And sure, just like Hollywood remakes, many of them are original in their details, in local flourishes. They're just not original in their conception. So that means we can pretty much ignore them and confine our investigation to the older ones. And by investigation, I don't mean we're going to examine every single detail in them. Why the fuck not? Oh man, we gotta draw the line somewhere. So we're just gonna look at the differences in their main characters and see where that takes us. Oh, very nice. Much better. Part 3 In which we moonlight as fairy tale census takers. First, there's that Alsatian story. And just like Hansel and Gretel, it describes a family of four. Except the poor man and woman in it, well, they've got two daughters. Ooh! The next oldest story is Basile's Nenillo e Nenella, which comes out of his very popular collection known as the Pentamerone. This story, just like the Grimm's tale, well, it has a poor man and woman with a boy and a girl. The Pakistani story, Lal Badshah, the Red King, well, it also has a family of four, with a major twist. Instead of a poor man and woman, it has a king and a queen, with two daughters. Yeah, so what? The earliest French tale, Finette saint ron which the Grimm's themselves had read, since they mention it in their own notes on Hansel and Gretel, well, it has a family of five a king and queen with three daughters. Ooh la la. And finally, Perrault's Les Petits Pousset, the little thumb, also mentioned by the Grimm's, has a poor woodcutter with a wife and seven young children. All boys. What seems to be the problem? Well, that's an awful lot of variables and moving parts to juggle. And if we took the time to analyze each of them, we'd likely find that they change the ultimate meaning of each story. Kind of like that famous butterfly effect. So that, in the end, we'd likely find ourselves arriving at conclusions other than the ones Hansel and Gretel is leading us towards. As interesting and worthwhile as those conclusions might be, they'd also require years of work. We've been at this for hours now. Yeah, well, so let's just leave it at that and focus in on what the manuscript version is giving us. A family of four. And even more basically, the number four. Challenge accepted. 
part four, in which we have four for dessert. So feel free to bring up any associations you might have to the number four, especially if numerology is your thing. As for me, I have never put in the time and effort it takes to meditate on the metaphors and symbolism of numbers. Not the way Pythagoras intended. Uh, excuse you. What I have done, though, is spend years reading and thinking about the work of Carl Jung. And he had plenty to say about the number four. So let me see if I can explain what I've learned from him without going all Jungian on you. Basically, any grouping of four is a potent symbol of completeness or wholeness. And if that sounds a little arbitrary, it might be because you can always divvy up a pie into as many equal pieces as you want or need and still have a conceptual whole pie. At least until you finish dessert. (laughs) And sure enough, those two French fairy tales... They divide their fancy dessert into some number other than four. So let's just leave them to their Rococo Coco and find out more about the humble pie of our story. This is gonna suck. And of course, that means the woodcutter family, the complete whole family unit that our story divides into four pieces. Okay, so it's obvious these pieces aren't the same. They're male and female and young and old. That said, the only leap of faith we have to make here, and it's an important one, is to consider each family member to be equal. I'm not so sure. Not in size or age or gender, just equal in importance. Four equally important parts. Hmm. Okay, now that we've gotten this far, we have to make another bolder leap. We've got to decide what this family of four means as a metaphor. Well, I... I don't know. Just remember that whenever we're trying to figure out a metaphor, we're always just speculating. We come up with some reasonable hypothesis and see if it resonates and endures as we get more information. And just like in the scientific method, We're going to see if our hypothesis fits all the new facts as they come up. If it doesn't, whether it falls apart completely or is close but no cigar, what we have to do is change or adjust it in order to fit all the facts. I think I could. Now with that in mind, if you remember in episodes 3 and 4, we talked about the forest as being a fairly obvious metaphor of the unconscious. No. And as long as our woodcutter was living in front of, or right on the edge of, the unconscious, he became a stand-in for consciousness itself. So the leap I'm asking you to make with me is to change our understanding of the woodcutter. Since we now have more facts to work with, we have to make a slight adjustment to our original hypothesis in order to fit them. But what if... Instead of considering him alone to be a stand-in for consciousness, we now switch to considering the entire family of four as a stand-in for consciousness. No. And once again, not just any consciousness, our consciousness, the consciousness of any reader, 
male or female, young or old, who is somehow fascinated by this tale. And this podcast. (laughs) Don't push your luck. Part 5. In which we take the road less traveled. Okay, so what does this now mean for our woodcutter? What does that make him? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> what does he represent as a metaphor if he's no longer consciousness itself, but just one part of it, one quarter of it? And not only him, what does that make each of the other family members? What are they? Well, we're going to go with the hypothesis that these four pieces of the family pie symbolize four different, unique, but equal aspects of one whole and otherwise healthy consciousness, albeit one that is struggling. So, as Soupy Sales used to say, Now, just what do we mean by that? What is an aspect of consciousness? What are components of consciousness? Parts of consciousness? Pieces of the consciousness pie? It's all complicated. Oh, goodness. Trying to find an answer to this is indeed a thorny problem. So we'll either have to abandon, avoid, or otherwise circle around this question or dive right into it. Well, make no mistake, this is a huge turning point in our investigation of the fairy tale. And for two reasons. First, is that knowing there are no more characters we need to take into account, at least until much later in the story, we've got to figure this out now. Otherwise, we'll be wandering around our fairy tale forest without any real idea about the potent metaphor this family represents. And that would have us building a further speculative structure without any convincing metaphoric reference point. We need some kind of conceptual compass. And unless we can come up with a metaphor that makes sense, at least provisionally, we'd be stuck thinking of these family members as literal children and parents. Oh, no! And that's pretty much the stodgy, unimaginative compass that everyone who's tried analyzing this story in the last hundred years or so, that's what they've used. Now, where did that get them? So many have failed before. What makes you think you're different? No, no, we've got to do some hard thinking about this metaphor and answer these thorny questions about parts of consciousness so that we can at least run with this hypothesis for a while and maybe make some real progress. And guess what? We might even find that we're on the money. So that brings us to the second reason for this being such an important turning point. We're about to become modern fairy tale pioneers. That is excellent. That's because nobody has ever gone down the metaphoric road we're about to take. Although, even that's not strictly true. We're going to find that this road, it's been traveled before. Just not in the last 100 years or so. And not armed with the information that we've got. Okay, well you go first. See, that's another important thing about metaphor. 
We have to read a lot. Shh. We're in a library. Because that's where all the answers come from. If we're going to come up with ideas that seem to fit the metaphors, we can't just make them up. Why the fuck not? Remember I said that metaphor is the cheeky trope that's always saying A is B, or C, or maybe even X and Y. Well, this metaphor is waiting for us to recall something important we've read or come across before. Some B or C or X and Y that makes perfect sense and connects those cheeky dots. Is that so? So let's face it, unless we do, we'll never be able to think of these fairy tale details as anything but literal fact. So where have we come across or read about anything that sounds like these four pieces of consciousness pie business? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's where Jung comes in. Oh boy. Because oh boy. having read him, I know that he gives us a nearly perfect B and C and X and Y. Oh boy. See, he not only names and defines those four equal components of consciousness, he gives us an entire dissertation on the subject. And I mean, in a book that's close to 1,000 paragraphs long. Lewis, I think I found what we're looking for. Part six. The four horsemen. Of what? The book I'm talking about is called Psychological Types. And yes, it's the foundation that Myers-Briggs typology was built upon. Jung was explaining how four components of consciousness stand as the basis for differences in personality. Jung calls those four equal components of consciousness the four functions of consciousness. What the hell? Yeah, it's an unfortunately vague and misleading sort of name that lends itself to confusion and, to my mind, even misuse. Because unless you've read a good chunk of Jung or you're real familiar with Myers-Briggs typology, I might as well be talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse or even the so-called Merkaba, or chariot mysticism, that comes out of the Old Testament, something that's based on the four wheels of Ezekiel's fiery chariot. Hell, I could even be spouting some esoteric mumbo-jumbo about the four tires of an automobile. Except we humans, we've been holding on to the very concept of those four components in all sorts of guises. No way. Fact is, they're even represented in the suits of our modern playing cards, which themselves are based on the older taroki or tarot suits of coins, swords, cups, and wands. So finding them in a fairy tale, it's not as far-fetched as anyone might imagine. Funny thing is, they're not all that complicated or difficult to understand. What are they? They are, however, very tricky to explain. Blah, 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 blah. And that blah, tends to explain blah, 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 why nobody has ever recognized them in this fairy tale before. Not for quite some time, that is. What they represent are four different but equal lenses or filters through which we selectively take in and process reality. Reality being that thing we most need to be conscious of. 
The names that Jung gave them are logic, feeling, intuition, and sensation. What? Don't let sensation throw you off, because it basically means to take in things through the five physical senses. Simple. Now, the reason this has anything to do with personality types is that while we each have all four of those faculties or functions, we also each prefer to take in, process, and engage with reality only through one of them. Now, we still use and are influenced by all four of those lenses. It's just that one of them tends to predominate. What's known in typology as our dominant function. We're just friends. And it's our innate preference for using that function that eventually translates into personality. Maybe. It was Jung's contention that everyone's personality could be categorized according to the characteristics of those four lenses and the innate predominance or preference for one of them that each of us has. And that's the concept that the Myers-Briggs team took and ran with. And while Myers-Briggs gives us 16 personality types, they're all based on the fundamental concepts of Jung's four functions, or four lenses. So, okay, if you're already into Myers-Briggs typology, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's great. Not everyone's like that. Okay, so if you're not, no worries. There's still plenty of delightful stuff we can learn from this fairy tale without having any understanding of typology and its connection to consciousness. And that's because the fairy tale itself is going to teach us the most basic facts about it that we need to know. And that's why we're fairy tale pioneers, because we're gonna run with the hypothesis that each member of our woodcutter family is a caricature of just one of Jung's four functions. Interesting. As I said, each of us possesses all four of the functions, which is why we can take the family of four as a metaphor of our own complete and whole consciousness. In our hypothesis, each family member would represent the typical characteristics of just one of those four functions. And we're going to be able to identify each character with one function according to their actions in the story. See, because each of them is a caricature, they'll be acting in a kind of one-dimensional way, as if that single personality characteristic is all there was to them. Oh, really? All right, so I gotta tell you, just as it's difficult to identify someone's personality type in real life, it's not as if we're gonna be able to identify which of the four functions each character represents uh, right off the bat. Damn. We'll need to see them in action. And even then, it's going to take some time to figure them out. I mean, after all, the MBTI, or Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, which is a pretty lengthy questionnaire used to determine an individual's typology, and as I said, is based on Jung's four functions, well, that thing is by no means 100% accurate or even definitive. How long is this going to take? In fact, making a positive identification took me all of nearly 18 months of working through the metaphors of the entire story. Still, there's no need for us to know which is which at the onset. I'll simply point out the circumstantial evidence as we encounter it. 
So before we go any further, let's just address the elephant in the room. Where? 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 Our fairy tale was first published a good 63 years before Carl Jung was even born. So how could he or his functions have had anything to do with our woodcutter? Sure, Jung was a psychologist who considered fairy tales to be important symbolic and psychological mirrors of our culture and our psyche, both the conscious and the unconscious aspects. Even so, the author of our fairy tale was no psychologist and for sure had never heard of such a ridiculously 20th century idea as a function of consciousness. No, sir. Well, the answer lies partially in the fact that Jung is, like the rest of us, a true descendant of our woodcutter. See, here's the key, though. It's the fact that Jung was not the first person in history to ponder the concept of personality, or even personality types. Nor was he the first person to name the four different personality characteristics that he called functions. What's that you say? Part 7. In which we borrow the time machine for a trip to the doctor and hang on to it for a second opinion. Throughout recorded history, two particular groups of professionals have pondered the mystery of human behavior and personality and both came up with explanations that are now scoffed at by modern science. For good reason. I'm not going to get into a discussion about one of those groups, the astrologers, whose division of personality characteristics into 12 separate categories, well, it's far more sophisticated and interesting than most scientists realize. Bollocks, just bollocks. Instead, the names and categories dreamt up by the second group, the philosophers, well, they have a direct and dramatic impact on our story. So get ready for a whirlwind trip on the time machine. Our first stop is somewhere in Sicily, around 460 B.C., where we find Empedocles, one of the so-called pre-Socratic philosophers. Empedocles is the guy that gave us the concept of the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Now that probably doesn't mean much of anything in terms of our four family members. Even if those elements are somehow worked into the psychological divisions maintained by the astrologers, except he too, Empedocles, is another one of our woodcutter's celebrity ancestors. There's even a wild family legend saying that somewhere around 434 BC, he died by throwing himself into the active crater of Mount Etna. <gasps> hey, just hold that image somewhere in the back of your mind because it will indeed come back to us when the time is right. Our next stop on the time machine is right after the death of Empedocles, and a little further east, in Greece. This time we run into Hippocrates, the famous father of Western medicine. Now, oddly enough, 
I don't think Hippocrates was a woodcutter ancestor. No, we just need to know about his contribution to the story as the guy who connected the four elements of Empedocles with the four so-called humors of the human body. Blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. You're scaring me. So, what's the big deal about the four humors? Well, just as the four characters of our story make up a single, whole entity, in other words, our family unit, for Hippocrates, these four humors, as a mixture, make up the entirety of our bodily fluids. Ew! And any unbalance or imbalance in the mixture, either too much or too little of any of them, well, that's what caused illness and pain. Hippocratic medicine was all about keeping those humors in balance. And just remember, at some point in our story, two members of the woodcutter family unit get kicked out, leaving it unbalanced. It's really terrible. That might sound like a stretch of the metaphor, since we've only covered two of its sentences. And that's why we still need to treat this as unproven hypothesis. And yet, the fact that nothing so far drastically contradicts our hypothesis, well, that, at the very least, is encouraging. Well, okay. Okay, so we need to hop back on the time machine and cruise forward another 500 years or so, to somewhere around the second century Common Era, where we have to make one more doctor visit, this time to a Greek doctor living in Rome. Roma! This is the doctor-philosopher known as Galen. And his contribution to our story is that he not only furthered the balancing act that Hippocrates had started with the humors, he was deeply interested in the mysteries of human personality. With Galen, we can say that the four humors became intimately connected to personality by way of the four so-called temperaments. In other words, Galen felt that you could diagnose the state of someone's mixture of humors by observing their temperament, which was in essence their personality type. Long before Jung and Myers-Briggs named their personality types according to those four functions of consciousness, Thanks to Galen, Western Europeans understood there to be four different personality types, each named according to an overabundance or dominance of one of the four humors. Now, the names of the four temperaments, the original personality types, they come from the names of the four humors. And these are names that we still use today, albeit more for literary purposes than medical ones. And they are sanguine for blood, choleric for yellow bile, phlegmatic for phlegm, and melancholic for black bile. Uh, So according to Hippocrates, in each human being, there's a mixture of the four humors. And according to Galen, the predominance of one humor leads to a characteristic temperament or personality type. 
And while we could possibly make a case for identifying the personality type for each one of our woodcutter family members, and maybe name them after one of these temperaments, if we go on just a little bit further in our time machine, we'll arrive at another interesting place and time that brings us so much closer to the model of personality that our fairy tale much more accurately seems to be based on. So let's make a quick move forward another three centuries, and that puts us in the 5th century Common Era. And that's where we find the Neoplatonic philosopher Proclus. He's writing out a little essay on what I'm going to call here magic. Although that's not quite the right name for it. One intent of this magic that Proclus was into was meant, surprise, surprise, to achieve the more or less pagan equivalent of unio mystica. In other words, union with a god or gods. Now, it turns out that the original Greek text disappeared, and it wasn't found until around 1928, although we did have it in translation. So, with Proclus in mind, let's make one last trip on the time machine, this time an entire millennium ahead, to the Italian Quattrocento, or Renaissance. Italia. In the city of Florence, where the Greek text had fortuitously landed and was translated into Latin by that famous denizen of the Medici court, Marsilio Ficino. Who's this? Humanist scholar, astrologer, and, yes, another one of our woodcutter's celebrity ancestors. Oh, boy. Ficino translated the title of the Greek text as De Sacrificio et Magia. And in it, there's one hell of an important sentence that may or may not have directly influenced Jung in his naming of the four functions. Who cares? Now, I'm not going to read the entire sentence. At this point in the story, we still need more context for that to make complete sense. I will give you the gist of it, though. Because Proclus spoke of four different ways in which people approach the gods and pray which essentially speaks to the idea of there being four different personality types. Ficino translated them as intellectuali, razionali, naturali, and sensibili. Oh boy. Oh boy. And not surprisingly, they've been translated into English as intellectual, rational, natural, and sensible. Of course, in both Latin and English, they don't seem to make much sense as four different personality types. Roger that. Just remember, Jung called his four different functions intuition, logic, sensation, and feeling. And so that seems problematic for our hypothesis, since they don't sound a whole hell of a lot like Ficino's translation of Proclus. Well, this is awkward. Well, remember I said that the original text was lost to us until 1928. At least we have a copy of it now. So here are the four words in Greek. Noeros, logikos, fusikos, and estetos. Okay, so they don't sound any closer to Jung's words than Ficino's. That first word, though, noeros, that's what's really going to make us pioneers. 
What? If you go and look up the English words noesis and noetic in dictionaries and encyclopedias, you'll find an enormous range of ideas. And that's because, for my money, Ficino's translation of noeros into intellectuali? That's one of the first major misdirections and misunderstandings ever applied to the concept of intuition by our culture. What? So make no mistake, the translation we're going to apply to noeros is intuition, which would put the original concepts that Proclus was aiming at more in line with the words that Jung chose for the four functions as the basis of human personality. That's it. Yep, there it is. Going forward, it's our hypothesis that somebody in the family represents logic, or logikos, Ficino's rationale. Somebody else represents feeling, or estetos, Ficino's sensibili. Somebody represents sensation, or fusicos, Ficino's naturali. And finally, somebody represents intuition, or noeros. And I'm just going to deep six Ficino's intellectuali, since it's pretty obvious to those of us who have found our intuition that in modern Western culture, most intellectuals not only have very little understanding of what intuition actually is and means, they have zero respect for the word and what they think it means. That shit is fucked up. Right or wrong, we're going to see if our hypothesis doesn't prove to be the golden key to understanding and explaining everything there is to know and learn from Hansel and Gretel. And I gotta tell you, it actually does. And while I've been working on this material for the last 10 years, I've jealously guarded that information. And I haven't shared it with anyone except family. So you're the first to hear it from me. And for sure, you heard it here first. So I have to admit that I've been hoping to publish it in a completed and polished book. The problem being that while the book is completed, it's far from polished. Oh, huh? You, you did it? Good job, I guess. Putting the material out in this podcast, well, that's part of my ongoing efforts to rewrite, edit, and otherwise polish it. While making sure that it doesn't have to wait another century or two before someone finally pieces it all together. Whatever. Next time, we're going to move on to the third sentence of our fairy tale. Hooray! Which is when the shit really hits the fan. Uh-oh. So if you haven't already hit me up for a copy of my manuscript version of the story, please do that so you can follow along and know what's coming. And maybe do some literary sleuthing on your own in between episodes. Just hit the Talk to Me link on the website at betweenthelines.xyz and ask me for the free PDF. In any case, here are the first three sentences of our fairy tale. Once upon a time, there was a poor woodcutter who lived before a great forest. He had it so rough, he could barely feed his wife and two children. But once, there wasn't even any more bread. So there it is. The story now tells us that the lack of food is the immediate problem facing the family. 
And once again, while so many investigators of this fairy tale have limited themselves to taking this development as literal fact, we're going to consider what this new lack of bread could possibly mean as a metaphor. And not just in isolation. All of the detailed work we've done so far may have seemed a little dense and even excessive. What it has done, though, is allow us to establish a rich and fertile context surrounding the word poor that we can now plant with the metaphor of this new, dire development. And while it might take us another two episodes to work through the metaphor, we're well on our way towards leaving all previous literal interpretations of the fairy tale far behind in the dust. So have a think about the metaphor yourself and see how your thoughts about it intersect and diverge from mine in the next episode. Not only will that enrich your own understanding of the story, it's a great way to exercise and strengthen your own intuition. Hey, it might even balance your humors. Well, thanks for listening. Don't forget to stop by the website for transcripts, links, and maybe just to say hi. Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti.